About 500 years ago, North and South America were filled with Native Americans. European colonists were just making contact with this new world. Exact numbers are hard to establish since most of, most of the tribes didn't have a written language, but some scholars estimate in both Americas there were about 50 million Native Americans. We do know, however, that most of those 50 million didn't survive long after contact with the Europeans. Why not? Well, you know, the majority died from disease. The Native Americans didn't have immunity built up to diseases like smallpox, and so millions were wiped out that way. But there's another factor that led to the decline of the Native Americans. It was their own disunity. As the Spanish and Portuguese were colonizing Central and South America, and the British and French were colonizing North America, the natives failed to repel them. The Europeans posed a substantial threat to their existence, and at first the Native Americans vastly outnumbered the colonists. If they had merely banded together, even though they had inferior technology, they could have push the Europeans out. But that didn't happen because the tribes could not unify. Instead, the Europeans found hundreds of these scattered tribes that were so busy fighting with one another that they paid no attention to the greater threat. For centuries, these tribes had been at war with one another, and they could not put aside their differences to defend their homeland. And this made their land easy picking for the colonists. In fact, some tribes would even ally with the Europeans to fight They're rival tribes. This infighting blinded them to the bigger threat, and we all know what the result was. They were essentially wiped out. And though it's tragic for the Native Americans, there's a lesson to be learned here because history is, in a way, repeating itself, not with a people group, but with the church. Unfortunately, Christianity in America, and even worldwide, has fallen into a sort of tribalism. There's always been a number of local churches. That's, that's not the problem. The problem is when these churches split and divide from one another, creating their own little circles, and then each tribe, each circle, has their spiritual territory that they must defend. And the result is strife. But this, in turn, has weakened and blinded the church to the greater threat of the growing depravity of a secular culture, And now as we've pretty much lost the culture war, we look around and wonder why. And don't get me wrong, sometimes division is necessary. We actually have to divide and separate from those who deny the gospel, who deny the Lord. We have no unity with those who deny the truth. But a broader unity within the true church must be maintained. This unity is essential to the thriving of any given local church and the church at large. Otherwise, Christianity in America just might go the way of the Native American. This is not a new lesson for the church or a new challenge. Ever since the church's inception, this unity has been an issue. That's because even though we're forgiven in Christ, we're, we're still sinners, and sin divides people. It always wants to, to tear us apart. And it takes the power of the Holy Spirit and a great deal of love to overcome the, the divisions. And for some churches, it it just doesn't always work out. And so we find even for the early church, even the first few little local churches, they needed instruction and exhortation on unity. Even for the first churches, it was a struggle. The church is comprised of all these different people coming together. And in the early church, there was no greater difference than Jew and Gentile in one body. That's a struggle, especially back then. Christ himself said the unity of the church would be one of the greatest factors in the evangelistic impact of the church. It's still our mission today. And so we find that still today there are a few more important issues for the church to address. The Apostle Paul knew this well. And that's why we find Paul stressing the importance of unity in every single one of his New Testament letters. In fact, why don't you turn to Romans 15. If you want to follow along, we'll do a quick survey here. Just by way of introduction, I want to take you on a brief survey of Paul's, some of Paul's strong exhortations to unity. Something I want you to see with your own hand. From God's word to see how significant this theme is of the unity of the church. And we'll just go through some of Paul's exhortations here, starting in Romans 15. And if you're quick, you can follow along. We'll turn to several passages. 
He says in Romans 15, verse 5, he says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just turn the page over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. These will be in order, mostly. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Next, 2 Corinthians 13. You know that the Corinthians had a lot of issues with unity, so there's a lot in 1 Corinthians on unity. How about 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11? It says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Next, Ephesians 4. Here's a significant one. Ephesians 4. 1 through 6, a big passage, but it can't be skipped. Ephesians 4. And these are just an example, a sampling from each of the letters. In Paul's letters, several times he'll address the unity of the church. Ephesians 4, look at verse 1. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A few greater passages on the oneness of Christ's church. Well, let's do one more. Colossians. Turn the page over to Colossians chapter 3. Somewhat similar, but in its own right, special. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Another critical passage on the unity of the church. Colossians 3, 12. He says, So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We keep going into Thessalonians and to Timothy, to Titus, but this will suffice for now. Already, though, it's a pretty remarkable survey. Now, I trust you see for yourself that unity, or unity rather, really is one of the most recurring and and prominent themes in the New Testament. It's so important to Paul that he felt the need to address it to every single church he ministered to. And I think one of the reasons it was so important to Paul is because he knew it was so important to the Lord. How about one more passage? I'll read for you. John 17. This is Christ praying that the high priestly prayer, he's praying for his future disciples, and this is what he prays for, for the church. John 17, 21, he, he prays that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you have loved me. That's Christ's most significant prayer of them all. And one of his top requests in that prayer is for the future, the ongoing unity of the church. He even prays that they would be as unified as as he is with the Father and would share into 
this triune unity. It's remarkable. The result of such unity, he says, will be the progress of the gospel. That's how, it's one of the ways the world will know that Christ is true by this supernatural unity of the church. It's not natural for so many different people to come together as one. But when it happens, the world will take notice. A united church is God's plan for evangelism. Now, if you're wondering, Christ's prayer for unity was fulfilled, in a sense, when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit is the fabric that unifies the church and gives us unity with God. But like we read in Ephesians 4.3, our goal now is to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All true Christians are united by the Spirit within them. But now we must strive to make sure that we are living that out. We are living as one. And this explains all the exhortations to unity in the New Testament. And that includes our passage for this morning. You may have noticed I skipped over Philippians in that survey of passages on unity. But in our passage for this morning, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, we find what may be the greatest teaching of them all concerning the unity of the church. You can turn there now if you haven't already to Philippians chapter 2. Here Paul, though amazingly concise, he drills down on the importance of our unity, the basis of our unity, and the pursuit of our unity. You really won't find more of a practical passage, even applying to, of course, the unity of the church, even to the unity in, in marriage. So our goal over this week and next is to spend our time dwelling in this text, just soaking in all God would have us learn on the unity of the church. Now let's start by reading Philippians 2, 1 through 4, just to get familiar. Paul says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You could say that from the soil of pride sprouts only division, but from the soil of humility comes unity. And Paul's concern here, it is to implant, to foster humility in the hearts of the Philippians that they would bear the fruit of unity, which is so essential to their gospel witness. And so we find in this passage, Paul develops three vital aspects of unity, three vital aspects of of unity, And we just want to spend our time understanding each one, understanding and applying each one. We find one, number one, the prerequisites of unity. Number two, the picture of unity. And number three, the pursuit of unity. And so let's just, let's just get into this and, and go through these. Starting with number one, the prerequisites of unity. The prerequisites of unity. And he lists them in verse one. Look there again. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now, as we get into studying this passage, you might wonder, where where do you begin? And that first word should grab your attention. Therefore, he says. Anytime you see the word therefore, you know a connection is being made to something that was previously addressed. You should always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? So I'll remind you, it's all about the progress of the gospel. And so just just humor me. Look back at Philippians 1, verse 3, how he begins. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So from the very beginning, the Philippian church, they embraced the good news of Jesus, that by believing in him, you can receive eternal life. 
through his death and resurrection, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, purchased our forgiveness, and now by, by repenting, by believing in him, by bowing the knee to Christ as Lord, you can be saved. You can receive new life. And I pray all of you here have received that new life by faith in Christ. And for the Philippians, in, in believing and receiving their new life, they became passionate about the spread of the gospel. I mean, look, if Jesus truly is Lord, people should know, right? And so more than most churches, the Philippians embraced evangelism. And they partnered with Paul in the gospel. And one of the ways they did that was through giving. They, they couldn't go anywhere per se, and they also were very poor. But nonetheless, they still gave to Paul to support his missionary endeavors. And in that way, they partnered with him in the progress of of the gospel. And so Paul had them in his heart. Verse 7. He says, Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. As Paul ministered the gospel, so did they. They were his partners. But you see, now Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And so as you guys know, we've been covering this. The Philippians feared that this might spell the end of the gospel's progress through Paul. So they're very concerned about him. And that's one of the main reasons Paul writes Philippians to address that concern. And he tells them to the contrary, back of verse 12 of chapter 1. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. As we've studied the gospel, it marches on despite circumstances. In fact, even in Paul's suffering, even in his unjust imprisonment, the gospel was going into uncharted waters. The Philippians need not fear, but trust that the power of God can work through the gospel anytime, any circumstance, any place. So after giving them this encouragement and this personal update, Paul, at the end of chapter 1, he finally shifts gears and sets his sights on the Philippians themselves. They're his partners in the gospel after all, and they need to do their part to maintain that the progress, the advancement of the gospel. And so finally in verse 27, he gives the first real command or admonition. And what does he say? Look now at verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You can see, if you didn't notice before, chapter 1, it's very gospel-centric. It's all about the good news of Christ and their participation in spreading that. And despite Paul's circumstances of suffering, the gospel still progressed. It doesn't matter if he was in jail, the gospel was still advancing. The same should be true of the Philippians, despite their circumstances. But for this, they need to walk the walk. They need to live as heavenly citizens in accordance with the gospel. Otherwise, they're going to stunt the progress of the gospel. And what, is, what does it look like for them to, to live rightly in light of the gospel? Well, he says chiefly, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now we're getting closer to our, our text in chapter 2. For back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul introduces them to the theme of unity. It's really the first thing he brings up for them. If the Philippians are to be effective partners in the gospel, if they're going to live as heavenly citizens, they have to be unified. It's like Christ himself said, God, God's plan is to use the, the supernatural unity of the church for, for evangelism, for the gospel to go out. That's how the world will know that God sent Christ. This unity must be there. Now, we don't need to rehash the importance of this unity. I think we, we, we did that. But Paul knows how important it is. He also knows there are threats to the church's unity. 
and they need to be addressed. And so that's what he does next. The first threat is external. Outside forces are opposing the church, wanting nothing more to divide and conquer them. Paul had his outside threats, so do the Philippians. And so in the verses that follow, 28, 29, 30, he tells them not to fear their opponents, verse 28, because God is with them even in the midst of their suffering, though these opponents might persecute them and cause them to suffer like they did for Paul. God was still with them. In fact, he was working to bring about the greater good. And we just spent uh, three weeks covering all the good that God brings about through our suffering. So first, the Philippians need to be on guard against external opponents threatening to tear them apart. But now we find that there's, there's a second threat to the church's all-important unity. And that second threat is internal. The Philippians, like all churches, they run the risk of being divided from within. And this would just as much weaken their gospel effectiveness. So now we we finally get to chapter 2. This is what Paul addresses in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The internal unity of the church. Now, still, you might wonder, before we get there, is this even an issue? for the Philippians? Well, the answer is yes. Fissure lines were already forming in the Philippian church. Just, just look over at Philippians 4, 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And then verse 2, he says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Have you ever had a, a small chip or crack in your windshield? If so, and if you catch it early enough, it can be filled, it can be repaired. But if you don't do anything about it, if you just ignore it, it will grow. And it eventually will span your entire windshield, as I found out with my old Ford F-150. It may take a long time, but if left unaddressed, you'll eventually find your whole windshield is compromised and it just needs to be replaced. There's nothing else that can be done for it. Well, a crack had formed in the windshield of the Philippian, Philippian church. And on either side were these two prominent women, Iodia and Syntyche, Likely, other people in the church had formed lines around these two women, taking sides. This was the beginning of tribalism. And like all friction, it slowed them down. This disunity was slowing and stalling their partnership in the gospel. And that's a problem. A problem for any church. So yes, the Philippians were facing real threats, internal threats to their unity. Now, I know there's been a ton of background and context, but I want you to, to see the flow because now we, we can finally get into chapter 2, and it should just click into place. You can see why Paul says, therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, in light of their need to strive together for the faith of the gospel, he's going to exhort them on unity. He needs to address their internal unity. It's so important. And so he begins by reminding them of First, the prerequisites of unity. And he lists four to be exact. So back to chapter 2, look at verse 1. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, that's number one. If any consolation of love, number two. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, number three. And if any affection and compassion, number four. And then he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. To begin, Paul, he, he's laying the foundation of the church's unity. He's reminding them of what their mutual unity is based on. Like a chair, these are, these are the four legs on which the unity of the church rests. And, and likewise, you, you need to know these and rely on these for your unity. So let's just take some time and go over these four prerequisites or requirements for the church's unity. He says, first, if there's any encouragement in Christ. 
word for encouragement is perikalesis, which means comfort or help. Here Paul is channeling their, their shared experience of suffering, which, which God met them with encouragement and comfort. And Paul basically made the same point over in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 5. I'll just read for you. Or 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, rather. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. He says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundance through Christ. Philippian church knew the same thing. They had an abundance of suffering, but Paul is reminding them they also had an abundance of comfort in Christ. God is full of mercy and comfort, and he gives to them and us in Christ. Though you may suffer, he will encourage, he will comfort. And here's the thing. Just like there's nothing like the shared experience of suffering to bring people together, right? Even more so, there's nothing like the shared experience of partaking in God's comfort to bring people together. And this is the comfort, the mutual encouragement we all receive in Christ. So he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Secondly, if there's any consolation of love. Similar to the first, here Paul expresses that the comfort, the consolation we receive in love. The source of this love is God. Although the comfort we receive from one another need not be excluded. And such love as it consoles us, it draws us together. Think back to the Good Samaritan. You've got this guy, he's beaten up, left for dead by the side of the road. This good Samaritan sees him and helps him. He bandages up his wounds, takes him to an inn, cares for him, pays for his expenses. And Christ taught this is a picture of showing mercy, showing consolation to those who are in need. And it's such a fitting picture for what God first did for us and what we now are to do for others. And such love is often the starting point for unity. Sometimes it just takes an unexpected act of love between two enemies to lead them to to bury the hatchet. Number three, he says, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, a third prerequisite, fellowship of the Spirit. After mentioning Christ and alluding to the Father, he brings in the Spirit as a source for our unity. We've got the familiar word, koinonia. It speaks to our association, our common participation in the body of Christ. In the world, what is it that unites people in the world? What brings people in the world together? You notice it's all superficial, external things, like common interests, the neighborhood you grew up in, affluence, background, language, ethnicity. People will unite and consequently divide, I mean, seriously, over something as trivial as a sports team. Walk into a, a bar in Boston with a Yankees hat and, and see what happens. Although, why are you going into a bar? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there was this guy in high school I didn't really get along with, but then we found out we had the same birthday, and we just became friends after that. But it's such a, a superficial unity, though. John MacArthur gives a really perfect illustration here. Picture a bag filled with marbles. What's keeping them together? Just the bag. Remove the bag and they will all instantly just fall away, fall apart and scatter. There's nothing nothing internal binding them together. But instead, picture a bag filled with steel marbles and a powerful magnet in the midst. Even if the bag were removed, they would still be held together. An internal force is drawing them all together. And that should be the picture of the unity of the church. Ours is not an external, superficial unity, but an internal unity made powerful by the Holy Spirit. The the, the true basis of our unity is, is Christ. We are first united to Christ By faith, when you come to salvation, you are united to him. But as we enter that new life, though, we find we're not alone. Rather, the Holy Spirit then takes us and knits us into this quilt of the church, the body of Christ. And so now we're tied to many others. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, 
For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. That there's a supernatural oneness that comes made by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't eradicate our differences. We're still different. But it supersedes our trivial differences. The forces which draw us together are much stronger than those which draw us apart. That's only true in the church. And now we are partners. That's koinonia, fellowship. We're we're partners together in the Lord, in ministry, in fellowship, in worship, in service, in all things. And this fellowship of the Spirit must be remembered if we are to later practice our unity. Lastly, he mentions affection and compassion, a fourth prerequisite, affection and compassion. These two words actually go together like one word. You could say an affectionate compassion. This attitude, it really is a key prerequisite to unity. Paul joined these two words together over in Colossians 3.12, which we read. He says, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness. Same words, humility, gentleness, and patience. We have been the recipients of God's affection and compassion. Have we not? We were the ones first by the side of the road, beaten, bloodied, sinful, lost, vile, bound in sin, But God set his affection on us. He was moved to compassion and he saved us. He sent his son to lay down his life for us. So we first received affection and compassion. And think back to the Good Samaritan. It says actually that when he first saw the man beaten by the road, he felt compassion for him. And that led him to act and to to show mercy. And knowing what we've received from God, how can we not now do the same for others? This compassion for other people, other sinners, which we derive from God, it's the essential ingredient to our unity. If you you cannot view others with affection and compassion in the Lord, well, then you will never be one. These are the four prerequisites for the church's unity. Encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and compassion. If these requirements are met, the church has everything it needs to be one. Now here's the catch though. Back in verse 1, Paul says, if, if there is any. It might lead you to think this is optional. Or in other words, the church might not meet these requirements. However, that's not the case. In the Greek... These conditions are known as what's called a first-class conditional statement. All that means is that Paul is actually assuming these to be true. He's assuming these prerequisites have actually already been met. And it's true. These four conditions, they have already been met. They became true the moment of your salvation. So you might ask, why does Paul phrase them as ifs? Well, it's for emphasis. It's like if you said to your friend, If you love your mom, you should buy her flowers on Mother's Day. That condition, if, it's already true. Of course you you love your mom, and so you're really just telling your friend, you should buy your mom flowers on Mother's Day. But you phrase it as a condition to add emphasis, and it helps remind you as to why you should buy her flowers. You could even, instead of if, say since. Similarly, Paul is saying, since you have received Christ's encouragement and God's love. Since you have fellowship in the Spirit, since you've already received compassion, therefore strive for unity. That's what he's saying. All these prerequisites, they've already been met in Christ. What this means then is there's no excuse for the church. You as a Christian, you can never say, you can't be unified with others in the body. You can never say that. You can never claim it's just too hard. That person is too different or I don't have what I need. I'm not able to be united with the body. You can never say that. Ours is a spiritual unity in Christ. And if, if you're in Christ, if you're truly in Christ, God has already given you everything you need to 
pursue unity with the body, to come together as one. So remember this. That's why Paul is saying this. He begins to remind us as to why we are one in the first place. All we have already received in Christ. This is the basis of our unity. These are the prerequisites of our unity. And they're already there. And so this now leads straight into number two, which is the picture of unity. Secondly now, the picture of unity. After Paul sets the stage and relays the foundation of our unity in Christ, now he's going he's to paint a picture of what that unity should look like. So here's the goal. Here, here's what it, it, it would be nice if it looked like this. And he paints a picture in verse 2. So look again at verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So what does the unity of the church look like? Well, there's another set of four, four pictures here. So let's, let's briefly spend a little time going through these four pictures of the church's unity. He says, first, make my joy complete by... Being of the same mind. Now, you'll notice first, Paul makes a personal appeal. He says, make my joy complete. Remember later in chapter 4, he calls the Philippians his joy and his crown. But here, he wants them to fill his joy cup to the brim. As an apostle, Paul's joy is tied to the unity of the church. In fact, to a degree, all of our joy is a collective joy. We have a shared joy in the Lord. If one part of the body suffers, the rest will feel it. If one part of the body malfunctions, it will diminish our corporate joy in the Lord. You know, a few years ago, I went on this three-day, 20-mile hike. And on the trip back, I may have told this story before, but bears repeating, I developed this, you know, nasty blister on my pinky toe. It was bad, though. Really not much you can do about it. I had new hiking boots that weren't broken in. So that was a mistake. But you just have to deal with it. But it's amazing how just one little injury to your pinky toe can slow your whole body down. 99% of your body is just fine. But it just takes a little malfunction and your whole body will be affected. Likewise, Paul knows that if any church or even any individual Christian is failing in unity, the whole church will suffer and our collective joy in the Lord will be diminished by this infighting. So this is why Paul appeals to them first, he says, to be of the same mind. This is the first picture of unity. This word, it doesn't mean to think think the same thing per se. He's talking about a mindset. Share the same mindset with one another. That's how we would put it today, to be of the same mindset. He used that phrase over in chapter 4, when he was talking about unity again. But there it's translated living in harmony together. Realize the issue for the Philippians, it wasn't really false doctrine. Theological errors were not tearing them apart. That was not their problem. In fact, elsewhere, Paul justifies separating over false doctrine. But the Philippians, they were really just dealing with personal issues, personal preferences, and selfish ambition was driving them apart. They were not living in harmony because selfishness prevailed. At any time selfishness prevails, there will not be unity. Just not going to happen. So first, Paul tells them to be of the same mind, to share the same mindset. What is the mindset? Well, he's going to explain in detail in verses 3 and 4. But just, just by way of preview, it's a servant mindset. That's the key, to share a servant's mindset. That, that's really the chief picture of, of our unity. If only every Christian in the church had this pure servant mindset, like the Lord himself, putting the interests of others ahead of themselves, there, there would be no conflict. Where would it come from? We're going to talk more about that servant mindset next time, so don't miss that, but for now, understand at least that's the picture That's the goal of unity in the church, where everyone is humbling themselves and serving, not their own interests, but the interests of others. 
We have the same mind or mindset in Christ. Second picture, number two. He says, maintaining the same love. This one probably doesn't need a lot of explaining. This unconditional, self-giving love, it's the glue of the church. Through the Spirit, this love is what binds us together. Remember, the church still, it's the gathering together of a bunch of really different people who otherwise would never even be friends in many cases, right? Yet the church is pictured as one and we're glued together by a Christ-like love for one another. It's a supernatural thing. You you cannot fake it. Remember Colossians 3.14, we read as well. He says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's a great verse. More than any other thing, love is what binds people together. And Paul, he says, love, it's the perfect bond, glue of unity. Actually, in the Greek, the word bond, it was used to describe ligaments in your body, those, those fibers that hold bone together. And my dad was, is a doctor, and growing up, we had a skeleton in the attic, literally. It was a, it was a doctor's skeleton. It was used for teaching. One time I brought it to elementary school, and I was, I was pretty cool for that day. <laughs> the skeleton was hanging from this metal pole, and it had all these metal pins, of course, to keep the bones together. And if, if they had no pins, it would just be a pile of bones on the floor. The human body, it's the same way. If ligaments didn't exist, our bones would just fall apart. There's nothing holding them together. Bone and bone don't fit together. There's nothing to naturally hold them together. So obviously, ligaments are vital to our body's physical unity. These ligaments, they bring two objects together, which otherwise can't go together, bone, and they effectively make them one. And that really is a perfect picture for the church. What is, what's the ligament of the church? What is that which holds us together? Our spiritual ligament, Paul says, is love. That is what binds us together. Love is what enables you to stick to other people who are unlovely. And you don't want to stick to them. But you see them through the lens of Christ and it it changes everything. Love enables you to be united with those who are different, those who are even difficult. But this love, this agape love in the Greek, it's the love of will that chooses to seek the welfare of another. That's what it's about, regardless of how weird they are or unattractive they are, or difficult they are. It's how God loved us when we were quite unlovely, right? And so you are called to love others in that same way, and that love will draw us together. We can thank God that he loved us with this type of love, and again, how can we not now love others the same? 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So the picture of unity includes having the same love where everyone has the same self-giving love for one another that Christ had for us. If, if that were true, church would be remarkably united. So second picture, maintaining the same love. A few more here. Number three, united in spirit. Third, Paul urges the Philippians to be united in spirit. Some translations have being of one accord or being in full agreement. The phrase in the Greek, it's actually one word. It just says one soul. Just imagine, it's like if we all shared the same soul. That's the picture of the church's unity. We're so together, it's it's like we are one. and, And in Christ, we are. The problem with this, of course, is that our sin often gets in the way. What keeps you from living in harmony with one another? It's always selfishness. You want something. Someone else wants something else. There's no compromise, so there will be division. But just imagine a friendship or imagine a marriage or imagine a local church where everyone treated others selflessly, where their concern was not for their own selfish desires or even needs, but for that of one another. 
if people were mutually serving one another, needs would still get met, but there'd be no division, no conflict. Through Christ, you're brought into this close union with all these different people. And you all have to be of the same spirit and live harmoniously for this to work. There's no room for envy, jealousy, strife, selfishness, other deeds of the flesh. For this to work, the spirit must produce humility that we can all be united in spirit. Lastly, one more, a final picture, he says, being intent on one purpose. Intent on one purpose. With this last picture, Paul is actually saying pretty much the same thing he said with the first picture. Remember, at first he says, being of the same mind. That word in the Greek, phreneo, means to think. First, he says, to think the same thing. And at the end of verse 2, that last phrase, he says literally, to think one thing. And so the, the picture of unity in the church is actually framed by these two phrases. To think the same thing and to think one thing. And Paul is repeating himself pretty much to, to show emphasis. This simplifies the picture of unity in the church. Gives us an overall picture And like I said before, it's all about this mindset. Take a step back from the painting. What's the big picture of unity in the church? It is this mindset where everyone has the same mindset, the servant's mindset. Not talking about doctrinal division or theological concern. In reality, what are the issues that separate you from other people in this church, maybe in your marriage? Most of the time, it's not theological error. It's not like a debate about the atonement that divides you from people most of the time. Rather, instead, it's usually personal preferences, selfish interests, superficial differences. When you take your personal preferences, you make them the standard. Other people don't live up to your personal preferences, so they got to go. That is far from the picture of unity in the church. Instead, the picture is being one-minded, of the same mind. You take all your personal preferences, you don't throw them away, but you put them in the back seat because that's not what your unity or fellowship or relationship with others in this room is based on. Rather, your common salvation alone should be reason enough for you to live in harmony with one another. I mean, maybe you see that new person at church and that they're different. You have nothing in common with them. In fact, they even rub you the wrong way a little bit. None of that matters because you are striving for unity. There's one purpose here. We've got a goal. And the mere fact that both of you follow Christ, that's all you need to be united. You have the same Lord. You have the same spirit. You should have the same purpose like the Philippians, this gospel-centered drive to to just represent Christ to the world, to magnify him and let the light shine. All that being this case, now like the Lord, you must simply serve one another selflessly in love. You do that in this church, in your marriage, in the community. Just watch this supernatural love and peace and unity result leading to an evangelistic impact. This is God's desire for his church. I'm sure you've seen these LED flashlights. They're more powerful and more efficient than normal flashlights. They're created by taking a bunch of really tiny LEDs and then, of course, pointing them all in the same direction. And the result is a far brighter light than any of them could produce individually. But what if you took one of these LED flashlights, and you started taking the individual lights and pointing them all in different directions. You would have a rather worthless flashlight. Their strength is derived from their united direction. And that really is a good picture of the church. The picture of unity inside the church, it's being of the same mind, where we're united, not just in thought. You don't have to think the same thing, but in direction. We all want the same thing. We want God to be glorified, Christ to be magnified, the gospel to spread. And only when we're all pointed together 
in that same direction, not letting minor issues or personal preferences sidetrack us, will this take place? So receive and, and apply this calling to be united, join in one direction with the church. So far we've covered the essential prerequisites of unity, which are already there, leading to the picture of unity in the church. We've been equipped. We have everything we need, and we know what to aim for. All that's left now is to pursue unity, the pursuit of unity, and we'll come back and do that next week. As we'll see, though, it all orbits around this servant's mindset, which we must pursue. In fact, a good place to end is with a preview of that servant's mindset, the pursuit of unity. So why don't we just finish by reading what's to come, Philippians 2. And so he says right after this now in verse 3, in light of all this, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And don't forget verse 5, where he says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Until next time, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, humbled by your word and by the truth Lord, we know that in our flesh, we are selfish. That is the definition of our sin nature. We we have fallen, no longer seeking you and your glory, but only self and self-interest. It's the definition of idolatry, the seeking of self and all that pleases self. And we once were there living for self, seeking the, the pleasures of the self, pursuing self. And that only results in division that divides us from you, Lord, and us from one another. It's what breaks marriages, separates families, and kills churches as well. But Lord, in in mercy and compassion and affection, you sent Christ to die for us. The ultimate selfless act he took upon himself on the cross. for unworthy sinners, and that now, Lord, is the glue that unites us together, transforms us from being selfish to selfless as we follow Christ, as we deny self to follow him, Lord. Now we have what it takes to finally be one with you and with your bride. And that is just putting others first, to love others with the same self-giving, selfless love at which Christ loved us, Lord. And install this reminder in our hearts now as we're reminded of the foundation of our unity, which is already there, and the goal, the picture, we know what to aim for. Just convict us, Lord. This is, it's so critical Especially today, our our country is divided. Churches are divided. Let the true church, though, gather together as one, just to simply witness to to the Lord and to the world of the Lord, Lord, how you, you sent Christ. Christ is real. Christ saves and he transforms. May the world know us by this supernatural unity. Bless us as we depart until next time as we learn more. But already may this servant mindset start to trickle down into our lives that we can love others with the same love which with, with which you loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.